Good evening. You are listening to a Rattlegen Broadcasting Premier Podcast TV party tonight. I'm your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And this is our annual Veterans Day show. And here to join me, as he always does on this very special day, it's Andrew Graham from our Canadian office. How do you do, sir? I do well, Mark. How do you do? Good. It's be- glad to have you back from the wild. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I did a, uh, a week out uh, doing some unsuccessful hunting in uh, southern Alberta. It was spectacular, but uh, unfortunately did not come up, come back with anything to fill the freezer. The nice thing about, you know, going fishing when you catch nothing is you can just stop by like the grocery and just like, buy yourself a salmon. <laughs> like, ah, <laughs> look what I caught. Anyway, uh, so this is our annual Veterans Day show, like I said before. And uh, in the past, we've done Five Came Back. We've done Medal of Honor. Uh, we did 13 hours one year because Andrew Graham had to scream about that movie. Oh, that was an on trial, not a, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, 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 we've been doing this for a few years now. Can you remember any others that we've done? I think, yeah, five came back, um, medal mm-hmm. of honor. And then I think this is our first dramatic series that we've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, my pay. So this was your pitch. We, like I said, we like to do these once a year, uh, veterans Day or the night before veterans day. And I usually let you pick, um, and you picked Band of Brothers this year. What made you pick it? Uh, Band of Brothers for me is kind of a very, um, I'll call it kind of a standard for me in terms of like the mm-hmm. this kind of genre. I mean, the, the it's actually this year is the 20th anniversary of the show. I remember watching it back when it came out. I think I literally had the VHS copy of this at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know of the the DVD version, but I mean, this has been one of my favorite series to rewatch over the years. Um, and we were talking a little bit about the pre-chat there. When I was in university, I did a, a degree in, in history at the University of Calgary. This was constantly on in the background when I was paper writing. What is Where's, your what is your area of expertise in terms of history? What part of history did you focus on? Um, I technically have um, basically Canadian history. I didn't get quite enough credits to, to focus on Canadian military history, but it okay. was something I definitely put some effort into. Okay. Um, how much familiarity do you have with World War II, which is what this is based This is... Um the setting for the story? Uh, quite a bit, actually. So um, a lot of what I wrote about in university was focused on uh, the Canadian army in Northwest Europe. So a lot of either um, kind of post-Normandy or what's called the Battle of the Shelled Estuary, mm-hmm. which happens in kind of, it, it's not talked about a lot. And then actually Netflix just released a movie called The Forgotten Battle, mm-hmm. which it very much is in a lot of ways. And it so it occurred kind of Late October, late September, early October, nineteen forty-four. So a little bit after Market Garden, which is which we'll talk about during this uh, this show tonight. All right. Uh, well, let's get into it. So, Band of Brothers is a two thousand and one American War drama miniseries based on historian Stephen E. Ambrose's nineteen ninety-two nonfiction book of the same name. Uh, it's created by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. Which my uh, my wife reminded me. He was like, you know, it's something to be. Uh, she, she, I was watching this and she kind of went through the room and saw what I was watching. And she was like, why are you doing this? Because, and I said, because Andrew Graham twisted my arm and made me, 
Um, and she was like, you know, you have to understand something about this show. That this was either like developed or came out around the same time as Saving Private Ryan. Um, and that that was the connection that she made. And I don't necessarily have the dates lined up uh, for me there. Uh, but it was after. It was after. Okay. Yeah. So Pri- Private Ryan came out in in '98, and then okay. I think within about a year or two. Uh, from a production point of view, both Spielberg and, and Hanks were kind of working towards doing some kind of series on on World War II. Yeah, clearly they were bit by the bug uh, on this oh, particular yeah. topic. So, and I think that was the point she was trying to make to me because my initial sort of reaction to this is how graphic it is. Probably, I, I know one of the other movies I think about is Glor- uh, not Glory, um, The Patriot, I believe, with yes. uh, Mel Gibson. You know, and I and specifically in terms of graphic uh, depiction of graphic violence, like the cannon fire in that movie where, you know, where the, the ball is rolling and people's legs are coming off Um, and it it being trying to depict that as real as possible. And here you have a lot of graphic depictions of people being caught and being hit by shrapnel and bombs going off and the after effects of all that people, you know, with their guts hanging out on the table. Um, and so clearly Tom Hanks and S- Steven Spielberg, after making Private Ryan, had a had a point of view, had a perspective, um, really had a passion for wanting to show what exactly, you know, the greatest generation went through uh, in this experience. Yeah, definitely. It has a very similar sensibility in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that was towards trying to dispel a lot of the i guess kind of the the at that point the 60 year 60 or so years of kind of depictions of of what world war ii was like where Mm -hmm. you know it was it was john wayne it was somebody i'm gonna mime it they just ah and then fall over or something like that i was thinking about like white christmas actually because my wife makes me watch that every year and so you know you get you get some (laughs) clearly shot on a soundstage uh, depictions of, of guys in war and a little bit of bombing going off here and there as a fake wall falls over. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, I can see why there might be a kind of passion for, okay, if that's what people think this is like, let's show them what it's really like as best we can. Yeah. And I mean, talking, speaking specifically to Tom Hanks, I've, I've mm-hmm. listened to a couple of interviews with him over the last year or two, kind of on this, and he is a huge history buff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, he just did that movie, I want to... It was on Apple TV Plus. It was, I want to say it was the Bulldog Finch. or something like that. Okay. I was thinking um, you were talking about Finch, but yeah, there's the other one. Uh, the one about him being on a Corvette in the in the North Atlantic during the Second okay. World War. So that was a lot of it. I mean, you can see a lot of what his production company has done. Uh, Playtone, which produced this. So they did this. They did the Pacific. They did John Adams. They're doing... Mm-hmm. We're actually oh, going to get a third series. John Adams was Tom Hanks? Yep. Wow, I love that series. I've never actually watched it, but I've heard it's good. It's great. Yeah, it's 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 worth a watch. Okay, I'll, I'll definitely have to keep an eye out for it. They're actually working on another series and kind of this, another companion piece to this called mm-hmm. the called Masters of the Air, and that's okay. going to focus on the Eighth Air Force over Europe during World War II. So that is, that's very much kind of the bomber thing. So well, if, we, if we talk about that and we don't include David, he'll never speak to us again. Um, oh no, I'm positive he won't. <laughs> All right. So um, continuing with our description here, uh, they also served as executive producers and they collaborated on Saving Private Ryan, 
The H, uh, first year on HBO, September 9th, 2001, it, the series won an Emmy and Golden Globe for Best Miniseries. The series dra dramatizes the history of Easy Company. And as David Schwimmett tells us, this is not this company. This is not that company. This is Easy Company, don't you understand? <laughs> we'll talk more about David Schwimmer in just a moment. Yep. Um, 2nd Battalion, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division from jump training in the U.S. through its participation in major actions in Europe up until Japan's capitulation at the end of World War II in the, ta-da, nick of time. Because uh, they were about to go there as well. Um, the events are based on Ambrose's research and recorded interviews with Easy Company vets. The series took some literary license adapting history for dramatic effect and series structure. The characters portrayed are based on members of easy company excerpts from interviews with some of the survivors are used as preludes to the episodes but they are not identified by name until the end of the finale all righty so uh episode one curry is that how you pronounce that Curry, yes Thanks. we stand alone easy company trains at camp to uh tokoa georgia under first lieutenant captain herbert sobel a very strict disciplinarian who drives his company harder than the commanders of other companies. Sobel also goes out of his way to find fault with his men uh, and the platoon leaders. The company is shipped to England in September of 1943 to prepare for D-Day. As training progresses, Sobel's inadequacies in the field as a leader become more and more apparent. Poor David Schwimmer. He also initiates a dispute with his executive officer, Lieutenant First Lieutenant Richard Winters, that escalates higher than Sobel anticipated. As a result, all the non-commissioned officers in his company decide to resign in mass, this forces Colonel Sink, the regiment's commander, to re reassign Sobel to command of a jump school for essential non-infantry personnel. So let me say how I love this first episode. This this might be my like one of my favorite episodes of the whole series. David Schwimmer, I don't know how much friends you watch. I think we I think you said in the chat you weren't a huge friend. Maybe you, maybe your wife was. My wife is my wife is Mino. <laughs> okay. I have seen a. I have not watched it from beginning to end, but I have seen plenty of episodes of Friends. And David Schwimmer was always sort of a, uh, you know, just kind of old shooks, you know, just he, he gosh, um, how to describe him? He he's supposed to draw sympathy for the crowd. He always annoyed the piss out of me. You know, everyone you were supposed to cheer for him and Rachel. Um, and David Schwimmer is always is always playing. I've never. This is the first time I've ever seen him in a very in a negative villainous role. Uh, I've never seen him quite so mean, and I loved it. I absolutely thought David. Like sometimes I don't think about what a great actor David Schwimmer really is because he's always playing these sort of light touch roles, and then he gets this, and he's such a douchebag. Oh yeah, his uh, his performance in this is fantastic. He makes an immediate impression in terms of. His behavior towards his men, his general way he carries himself, everything mm -hmm. along that. And, and, you know, to your point, I am not a huge uh, Friends fan. And and it's kind of funny. A couple of the Friends cast members I've actually grown fond of as actors since since that series has ended, I think. Mainly mainly Schwimmer and, and uh, Matthew Perry, actually. He had a really good stay on the West Wing for a few episodes. But, uh, I mean, really kind of sets the personalities at play in terms of him versus uh, Damian Lewis's uh, Richard Winters, mm -hmm. meet Nixon, Malarkey, um, uh, Garnier, uh, Bull, kind of all your main characters, main players. You know, I, I can somewhat, I, I think David Schwimmer's character goes a bit, bit overboard, but I think his, init his initial reasoning of toughening the, these guys up, you know, 
I wish we had gotten a little bit more of what was driving David Schwimmer. Was he just being a bully or did he see the writing on the wall and realize he had to toughen up these men for the long march across Europe? This was not, I mean, I, I think about saving Private Ryan in that opening scene of the invasion of Normandy and what, you know, and just what a, a you know, the men running into machine gun fire on the beach and how many of them got cut down, you know, and, and, did he have some semblance of knowledge of that's what they were going to be facing, you know, that, that, that they would have to run straight into death or was he just, you know, overtaken with his own power and prone to abuses, which is separate from the other issue of, you know, some men are good trainers, but not great field leaders. And clearly that was the case with him. Yeah. And that's, so that's actually a point of contention among the easy company veterans. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of discussion on whether or not, Easy Company was successful um, because of Sobel or in spite of Sobel. Mm -hmm. um, Dick Winters did not have a great opinion of him. There's other guys who kind of begrudgingly said, yeah, he was a jerk, but he got us in shape for war. Right. And and I think there's definitely that, that discussion of can you be tough and can you maintain your standard without being cruel? Right. And I think there's definitely a little bit of an element of that where there is some cruelty involved where it's like, Hey, we're gonna have a light day tomorrow. Let's have some spaghetti. And then nope, yeah. we're running up the <laughs> right. I, I still I have want... negative connotations between spaghetti and cardio for this reason, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was looking at that scene where, first of all, David Swimmer's delivery of that line, I like spaghetti. I died <laughs> laughing. <laughs> I there is not a lot of funny in this show, but there is the occasional line delivery that made me smile and David Schwimmer's I like spaghetti line was the funniest thing that I'd seen in the whole series um but then you see you see what his machinations are he's like he wants to get these guys carved up and then make them run uphill and they're all like vomiting as they're running and then he's going do you want to quit and again I can kind of when you think about what they're going to go through over the course of the next nine episodes I mean think about the first jump um and, and if, if there's something else about the first episode, we'll, we'll jump in. We'll get into the second episode. But think about that first jump, you know, into the theater of war. They're being shot at. Like, you know, th there, there are planes being just shot out of the sky. Guys are having to jump out of the airplane early because it's on fire and it's going down. I mean, that is not a normal experience for most human beings. And, you know, and... And given, you know, people's psychological fight or flight, you really have to be trained up to face something as horrifying as not. I mean, look, the act of jumping out of a plane is, is, is unnatural, let alone jumping out of a plane amidst a hail of gunfire while your plane is on fire and falling from the sky. It's a lot. And so oh, yeah. I think back to he made him run uphill and vomit spaghetti. Maybe you, <laughs> you, need, you needed to be toughened up a bit. Toughened up, yeah, but I think on the flip side of it, you're also looking at, and and this is this is a series that considers and talks a lot about leadership. Mm -hmm. And there's that question of, you know, you have to you have to be able and you have to be willing and able to follow your leader's orders, but you also sure. have to trust the leader on some intrinsic level as well. Right. And there's that degree of, you know, like you said, he might be a good trainer, but not a good, say, combat leader. Right. But there's also that willingness to also be honest about that and to also look for ways to, to you know, encourage your your unit, uh, grow your unit, things like that. When you look about the relationship between 
him and Winters, I mean, he was clearly threatened by Winters. That's why he sure. pulled the court martial thing. Right. It wasn't it wasn't to toughen Winters up. He knew Winters was effective. It was to just basically big dog him. No, absolutely. And and even when he was like, you know, he kind of comes out of the tough man, you know, you said big dog, the big dog character. And he goes, he kind of softens his voice. He's like, Dick, you never go anywhere on the weekends. Just take the punishment. Yeah. You know, and Winters is like, no, let's 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 go. Let's take this to let's take this to court martial and see how it see how it rings out. And you can see David Schwimmer going, Whoop, I have gone too far. This is not going to end well for me. Yep. Um, and it's all in his face. So yeah, a lot of credit to, to David Schwimmer's acting on this. Um, anything about this first episode before we move on? Um, I mean I've probably said this on a lot of pilot episodes, but I mean, you know, it establishes the world very well. It establishes mm-hmm. kind of the the nature of the main relationships. It it establishes that winter's nixon relationship that will will track throughout we start to kind of learn what's going on with the um you know what the dynamic is among a lot of the men and things like that how they how they get along and it gives you an idea of the training um i'm just going to talk about it really quick because i'm actually have it on the background right now is (laughs) um they actually put these through these guys through like a six-week boot camp to basically turn them into world war ii soldiers Mm -hmm. um and it was run by um Captain Dale Dye, he was, um, he played Colonel Sink in the show and he was the, um, he was actually a United States Marine Corps Vietnam veteran. Um, and after that, he, you'll see him in Hollywood all the time. He actually ran a company and I think he still does, runs a company that basically does this sort of thing. It puts actors through boot camp, tries and make them, it makes them look soldierly. Okay. Uh, episode two, uh, Day of Days. Easy Company lands in Normandy, but is scattered all across the region and away from the designated drop zones, what I was alluding to before. The company commander of Easy goes missing when his plane suffers a direct hit, so First Lieutenant Winters assumes command of Easy. With a small group of men, Winters takes out a set of German gun emplacements at Bercor uh, and thereby wins the respect of his fellow soldiers as leaders. Recently promoted First Lieutenant Spears gives German prisoners of war some cigarettes. After the camera pans away, firing is heard. Yeah, that was heartbreaking, and I'll get it addressed yeah. later. Uh, apparently, that story becomes something of something of legend. But what really sells it for me is the kid who was uh, the American, but his parents had, you know, as he says, answered the call of the fatherland, and yep. so he ends up fighting for the German army. And it's, you know, it, it's a reminder that just because you're fighting in a war, you know, you're you're trained up to treat the to treat the other side as something less than human, so that you can be effective killing machines. And let's not let's let's not, you know, undersell what war really is. Yep. And then it's so easy to then forget that these are people. Some of these people may have been your neighbors at one point. I mean, my God, if we ever do anything on the Civil War, imagine that. You know. Oh yeah. Um. And so that's a it's a it's a reminder that and that's that one scene. It's like, oh, hey, you're from Oregon and you're you know, you're here and you think you're doing the right thing. You think you're you think you're honoring your family and your and your your um, your legacy and all of that. And then and then in, within minutes, you're given a cigarette and shot, you know, in the head. And it's like what for what exactly, you know, for for the machinations of Hitler and Berlin, you know, for. What 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 are we fighting for? As they would say years later, and so there there's a lot of sad in this show, and that that part, it I think it was brilliant, 
but also very sad. Uh, what did you think of the, that was the thing that stood out for me in this episode. What did, what stood out for you? Um, I mean, that was definitely one of them. I think there's mm-hmm. that real, there is that real kind of human moment, human connection where, you know, Malarkey comes up, uh, Scott Grimes also of, uh, of a mm-hmm. show. I think you're quite fond of, um, the Orville. Yes. Um, we will, we will do have to get into a, a, the number of, holy crap, I can't believe that guy is in this. <laughs> well, David Schwimmer runs away with that, but yeah, there's a lot of people. I'm like, Hey, I know him. <laughs> First of all, I kept looking at Mike. Hey, that guy looks familiar. Who's a holy shit? That's Donnie Wahlberg. That's Donnie Wahlberg. That's Michael Fassbender. That's right. Simon Pegg. Um, I can't remember the name of his car- the name of the actor. Um, I kept having guy- moments like like when you watch 1917 and Benedict Cumberbatch come- shows up and you're like, oh my yep. god, Doctor Strange is in this. I kept having those wasn't moments. In this. Yeah, so, really. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers: about half the cast is actually British. Mm-hmm. Um, just because they shot a lot of this in England and tax breaks and casting conveniences and stuff like that. Um, okay, so in terms of Day of Days, I mean, the initial jumps are pretty amazing sequence in terms of what these guys were going through. Um, obviously having to react to taking fire on the way in. And then kind of the the chaos afterwards where they're all trying to say, okay, where am I relative to my drop zone? Everything like this. It's not easy to be drop just jump out of a parachute in the middle of the night while being shot at while everything's on fire land in a foreign place that is basically all like forest and trees and whatnot and go okay i let me let me figure out where i am oh yeah and And something one of those things would be difficult yeah (laughs) and something to say about these guys just to put it um put in perspective a little bit paratroopers Mm -hmm. at this time were elite right these were guys who had to train they had to train very hard they had to because at the end of the day, it was there's a line new, on. Wasn't it? Sorry, it's also relatively new, wasn't it? Yeah, it was this was the first war where it was really happened. I think the mm-hmm. the Germans had really started it early in '39, and then uh, it had gone on from there. But all the armies mm-hmm. were kind of working towards it. And you know, as they say in a later episode, uh, paratroopers were supposed to be surrounded. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like the paratroopers were expected; they didn't end up, but they were expected to actually take horrendous casualties. Because they had to be dropped just far enough from the front lines um, or from the landing beaches that you were drawing some Germans that way, but they also weren't so far away that that they could be ignored. So mm-hmm. there's a real concern that these guys were going to, I can't remember what the numbers were, but they were supposed to take 50, 60% casualties. And they didn't at the end of the day, but um, but that was definitely one of the big planning considerations for Normandy. Um Talking a little bit about this episode, I mean, definitely the moment you talk about with uh, with uh, Spears and kind of the story of what happens there, um, it still is not clear what exactly happened. I do know uh, Ronald Spears was alive at the time of production, and uh, he had gone to the premiere, and he was actually nervous about going because he was legitimately concerned he was going to be charged with a war crime. I don't blame him. Yeah, um, but it's, that it's works, a rough uh, moment. The assault on Braycore Manor is fantastic. Yeah. I used to have a really crude um, surround system. And even with that, if you have a surround system, watch that scene because it catches the sound design and everything, catches all the crossfire, all the all the bullets whizzing by and things like that. Mm-hmm. And that is a really, really well done scene in terms of like how they choreograph it, how they set it up, how they establish the geography and everything like that. And it uses shaky cam well. Mm-hmm. I have to say, um, before we go any further, the big star of this show, besides the dramatic acting, is the special effects. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we talked in the beginning, and I made the joke about White Christmas. I mean, 
you watching the drop from uh from the airplane uh the battalion of airplanes i should say it, i mean like you wonder the phrase the wonder of hollywood you know the hollywood movie magic is often one that gets bandied about and and sometimes overlooked um you know now with cgi you know and, and green screens and whatnot you can just about make anything happen we've seen you know the battle of the five armies you know all the lord of the ring stuff we, you know we get the end game you get yep. all these fantastical uh cgi effects and it just you know we sort of just take it for granted now this was 20 years ago and it looks like they just had a guy with a video camera like they threw him out of the plane too Yep. You know, it looks that real. And it's and I have to give credit where credit's due. This is an amazing production. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. Like, I mean, that's uh, that sequence is something that has kind of become a little icon unto itself because mm -hmm. at the same time these were going on and afterwards, of course, you're familiar with like you've heard of like the Call of Duty games and Medal yep. of Honor and stuff like that. That yep. sequence has been replicated multiple times mm -hmm. in those games where it's like, you know, I think like Medal of Honor in 2001 replicated mm -hmm. Saving Private Ryan and now doing the the jump over Normandy is a is mm -hmm. a bit of a cliche at this point in, in some yeah. video World War II video games. So so you caught me red-handed. I you caught me rolling my eyes. And I and I look, I don't take anything away from people who play Call of Duty and all of that. It's just become one of those like staple like part of you know, if you if you hear comedians talk about, you know, the difference between boys and girls, it's one of those like all the boys play Call of Duty and it's like, okay, I get it. And so it was like you said it and I, and I, and I, and I don't, I don't have an opinion on people playing it. It's fine. If that's what gives them joy. It's just such a funny thing. To, it's like, it's such embedded part of our culture now. I can't say I'm a big call of duty player. Mm -hmm. I will say actually specific to this show. Mm -hmm. um, there was a series from about 15 years ago called brothers in arms. Okay. Which is actually based largely in history. It's about the 502nd PIR. So same division, different, different regiment. Mm -hmm. And um, it's very much more based in history. It's squad based. So you have a yeah. unit to command around. And one of the fun ones is that in one of the sequels, they actually have Dale Dye shows up and plays Colonel Sink at one point. So it's kind of mm -hmm. a, a nice little salute to Band of Brothers in there as well. There's a um, uh, an episode of Family Guy where uh, the town is tricked into believing it's the end of the world. And when they realize that it's not... Um, right before they think the world is going to end peter says i just you know i i just don't like being around the kids and then and it's like i love you lois i just don't want to be around the kids this is the infamous one where he rides in on a lion and, <laughs> you know and it's like, it's like i think he said something like i use the n-word and you know in a uh in a um a uh, african-american part of town and he walks in on the lion and he's got the cape on and the crown is like they respect <laughs> um in any case i bring that up because so so when the, so when he so when he says to the kids um <laughs> I, I just don't like being around you and then the world doesn't and now he has to deal with the consequences of that and the kids are all mad at him and they won't forgive him and whatever he's like well i can't get the kids to forgive me so i'll just bribe them instead and he buys them an xbox and the first game he plays the very first game and this is why this is why i mean it's so embedded in the culture call of duty Oh, I imagine and that. <laughs> and he's not just playing Call of Duty. There's there's people on the thing yelling at him, calling him noob and whatnot. Oh, probably. I've I've been on Call of Duty online, and it is a strange and savage place. Yeah. Uh, no, thank you. All right, moving on. Uh, Karen Tan, Easy Company. I'm gonna mispronounce all of these, so forgive me. Sure. Um, 
Easy Company fights the Battle of Carantan, in which they lose several men. Rumors start to circulate that Lieutenant Spears killed a group of German prisoners. The episode focuses on Private Albert Blythe, who struggles with shell shock following the battle. After he is finally spurred into action by Winters during the Battle of Bloody Gulch, Blythe overcomes his fears. Several days later, he is shot through the neck by a sniper while on patrol. Uh, the episode ends with the inaccurate statement that Blythe never recovered from his wounds and died in 1948. In reality, he recovered and continued to serve in the army until his death in Germany as an active duty serviceman in 67, holding the rank of Master Sergeant. I don't remember a lot about this episode, but I will say this. They talk about shell shock. Uh, that's what they used to call PTSD. And I could, and as a mental health professional, I couldn't help but watch this show and realize the amount of trauma these guys were serving. And it's that's why I, I was texting you at the end of the show when I thought they were actually going to go off to Japan. I was like, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah. look, the, the toughest, most, you know, most well-prepared army after two years of, of constant fighting and, you know, being out in the cold without supplies and all of that. This is all traumatizing. And many, you know, and and we're all built differently. We, we all have different coping skills and, you know, and our ability to uh, shoulder the trauma of an event like this, I just like I just felt so bad for all of these guys. Sure, they they were they were fighting the glorious fight, you know, for the you know for the future of generations to come. But at the cost of so many of their mental health, you know, I think I often talk about Vietnam. That's the war I'm, I'm more familiar with, and you know the amount of drugs and alcohol problems that came out of that for people dealing with their trauma. You know, this generation I think shouldered it a bit better, but not much. You know, you couldn't. It is said that they have shouldered it better, but you hear the stories and you go, eh, "I don't know how much you would want to quantify that." In any case, watching an episode like this and the episodes to come, all I could think about was the amount of collective trauma this gen that generation uh, incurred doing their duty. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, when I think about that kind of conversation, I think. A lot of uh, a line from one of my university professors, David Berkson, when when I was at University of Calgary, and um, he's a very well-known Canadian military historian. He, he said on the first day, the one thing you have to remember about war is that it causes people to do the two most unnatural things, put themselves at risk and kill other human beings. Right. So that's kind of a kind of a degree of stress there. And I think there's also a degree of you also have to create a little bit of a gap here between the idea of, of post-traumatic stress or what's called a, a traumatic stress injury. And I think what someone else would call um, kind of a stress reaction. Mm -hmm. So this would be something, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, but there's a, there's a code system talking about adrenal responses. Mm -hmm. So basically just without any other physical input where your heart rate goes. Right. And at the top end of that is what you call code black. Um, and that's basically where you your your active brain shuts off and you're doing only what you're instinctually ingrained at you at that point. Mm -hmm. And depending on the level, ideally what your training is... Locally, is that, I think you're referring to fight or flight. Exactly. So posture submit those are kind of your four reactions. And mm -hmm. it it's a, I'm going to quote my one of my instructor's favorite ones. And at that point, you don't rise to the occasion. You follow the level of your training. Mm -hmm. So if you're trained to get up and your first reaction under that much stress is to get up over the foxhole and start shooting, that's what you're going to do. Right. If you haven't been able to ingrain that to the same level, you might very naturally, very naturally 
hide right or run or prepare to die in a lot of ways that's where the submit comes in so sure um and we, we see a little bit of that in this episode as well where the, the other thing to remember is that you know we've been with these guys for a bit this is all their first time in combat yeah these aren't combat vets i i hate to do this just because like we're having a very serious conversation about a very serious show um on the eve of a celebration of their sacrifice and all of that but look things draw upon other things as inspiration and so um a couple of months ago we re-aired our uh, our hobbit and lord of the Rings shows and we actually talked about that for a little bit you know at the end of lord of the rings you have the hobbits all kind of sitting in the bar and you know they're surrounded by the other hobbits who were just celebrating you know great big pumpkins and whatnot and how wonderful life is in uh, in the shire and you have these four hobbits who've just been through hell and back literally you know and how it, it is and i think there's even a line of narration about how do you pick up the the, the pieces of your life and go back to it you know how do you go back to the innocence of the life you lived after you've been through all of that and you know and and Tolkien was writing about the guys that came back from the First World War. He was one of those guys. Right. He was in the trenches. He was he was a infantry lieutenant and he was he was in the trenches for a significant amount of time and mm-hmm. it's it's not hard to say that he drew a lot of a lot of his sentiment about war out of that experience. Right. And 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 that's in that is all over Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah. Um, and so I think about these guys and, and you're right. I'm like, none of these guys are professional soldiers as such. They were young kids who were drawn into this, you know, the, the enormity of World War II. And I think this is something that's been lost over time. The enormity of World War II and the amount of people it took to, in, to uh, have those engagements and win those battles. I mean, on either side, like you know, oh, yeah. the, the army that Hitler had to amass in order to conquer Europe and then just to lose it all again. The amount mm-hmm. and, and the even better one. And, and I think you know the statistics that do this better than I do, but I think comparatively speaking, between the Germans, the Americans, the British, and the Russians, I think it was what what like a uh, hundred Russians to every like one of anyone else that died in that war. Like the amount, it, it's like a crazy statistic of the amount of Russians that died, you know, in the, as Hitler was like marching into uh, into Russia and they were backing up, and then you know, and the army just sort of running out of gas. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't remember that off the top of my head, but I mean, the Soviet Union far outweighed any other of the allies in terms of casualties. They also killed seven out of eight Germans during the war. Right. So, you know, let, let's not dispel anything. Mm-hmm. That war isn't necessarily ending the way it did without the Soviet Union sure. pounding them from the east and, and Russia just sapping the life out of that army. Yep. So the Eddie Izzard joke, you know, Napoleon goes into Russia. I've got a good idea. I've got a good idea. Oh, it's very cold. It's very cold. It's very cold. Hitler comes along later. I've got a I've got to say, I've got a better idea. Oh, it's very cold. It's the same idea. It's the same idea. All right. Um, anything else about episode two? If not, we'll move on. Um, uh, three rather. I'm going to ask. I mean, everything's really good. Um, this all on Karen Tan's really good. You get, you know, again, you start to get a sense of where everybody is, how they function, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a little bit of that element of storytelling among soldiers and rumors and broken telephone that you get in here. Sure. Um, there's something that I do want to bring up and I'm kind of open to your interpretation on this. And, and okay. there's not a lot of information on, on Albert Bly. So I can't speak to him. The historical man is a character, but in terms of the character, and it's something I sometimes notice in Hollywood is that when they want to start dealing with somebody who's dealing with, with, operational stress or or things along that line mm-hmm. 
they sometimes tend to have people who act a little bit like a wallflower. You mm-hmm. kind of know what I'm going at. Like he is when you meet Blythe in that episode, he's not as much of an alpha as a lot of the other characters in Easy Company. And and I've seen them do that on a number of other episodes. And I, I don't know if that always serves the conversation in the best way because that's one of those things that can affect somebody who who is outwardly very, very prepared. And mm-hmm. those and sometimes those are guys who crack first, or you have right. guys who who are very quiet and very withdrawn, but when the shit hits the fan, they're right. the ones who are absolutely holding the line. I think it's a comfortable narrative that people in Hollywood um I, I think it's a narrative that people in com- that people in Hollywood are comfortable with. Yeah. You know. Um I think Imagine if you will, you want to tell you want to tell a story about somebody who's dealing with trauma and um, you know and and fear and all of that, panic attacks, whatever. And you're and you have a choice of characters. You can either do it with the wallflower, you can do it with the alpha. The kind of message it sends to your audience when you do it to the alpha, right yeah. or wrong, these this is still supposed to be entertaining, and people don't like to see their alphas cut down. I mean, imagine. I mean, look what happens when one of our sports heroes falls. You know, and how much you know anguish his you know his fans suffer because of it. Um, we don't like we don't like to see our gods and heroes brought low. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to do that sort of thing to somebody we don't respect as much. Definitely, and I'm going to say this right now. Whenever we talk about it, I'll tell you mm-hmm. right now. I think they did a better a better job of balancing a lot of that, and then also talking mm-hmm. about what you mentioned about the the putting together the pieces of the broken life. Uh, whenever we get to talking about the Pacific, okay. <laughs> there's only so many veterans days we're going to start inventing holidays to do these on <laughs> uh, alright uh, replacements of this episode <laughs> replacements join easy company struggling to be accepted by the veterans who fought at Normandy you know <laughs> it's like, never let their, let, never let a, a moment go by where you get to kick people who are just trying to do their job you're not as good as I am. You weren't in Normandy. Oh, for God's sakes, we're fi- we're fighting for n- nothing less than the, you know than the free world here. Please calm down. Sorry, it's, it's that that's the one thing about this episode that annoyed me. It, you know, because I could it annoyed me because of how real it is. You know that that we do that to each other as human beings. It's frustrating. Yeah, and there's a there's a significant amount of I'm just gonna use the phrase ball busting in these sorts of <laughs> these sorts of groups. Um, you mentioned on the chat you want to get to you want to get you think this is bad. Wait until we get to Generation Kill. <laughs> the, the epic levels of bull busting in that show right. is will be m- of much discussion, but there is a little bit of that, especially when you are in the units are also comfort for people. Mm-hmm. They are your support system. There's everything like that. Um, a lot of the background on what, how Ambrose got to writing his book was actually because easy company was having reunions until about 15 years ago. And they were one of the few units at a company level that was probably doing that. Like to have that specific group of, you know, a hundred right. or so guys get together every year. Like I think I'm really tight. I think it, I, I'm reticent to, to accept that as just human nature only because like I've seen it in places like professional wrestling locker rooms. Oh yeah. You know, where it almost gets cultish. And so I, I get a little gun shy about it. I get a, you know, I said, I get a little resident, um, reticent rather. Just because, like, I can accept the fact that, you know, the comfortability of your family, your unit, and all of that. But I think it can also, go, like we were talking about with, you know, with cruelty and training, it can go too far. Oh, it definitely can. You know, um, and I guess this is something I'm very sensitive to. In any case, um, 
Winters is promoted to captain. The company parachutes into the Netherlands as part of Operation Market Garden, where they liberate Eindhoven. Uh, during combat, Nunyan, the replacements integrate themselves with the company, but all are forced to retreat. The episodes fo- follow Sergeant Denver Bull Randleman. The replacement's immediate supervisor is he hides from the Germans in Nunyan after being cut off from his unit. Uh, I liked him. I like the actor who plays that character. One of the things I, this is going to sound weird. Look, I'm glad the U.S. won, obviously. I fucking live here. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm glad the Nazis didn't win. But it, I think for, in terms of, this is something you and I talked about right before I started the show tonight. This gets a little repetitive for me. Um I, I I just needed a little more dramatic dynamism in the in differentiation from episode to episode. I don't know how you would have created that given what the show is. So I'm not necessarily laying that solely at the feet of, you know, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks saying this was a bad show. I, I think they were trying to do a thing. They did that thing and it is what it is. I, I can't help it as a as a viewer. It, it like I said, it got a little repetitive to me. But the thing that I think went in its favor is you don't get the impression. They win, obviously, in the end. But along the way, there are setbacks. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, and to see an episode dedicated to a major loss, like, because I kept, because, okay, I don't know that. I don't know about the, about the nuts and bolts of this time period. I can speak about it in broad terms. But there are idiosyncrasies and details that have escaped me. It's just not my area of expertise. So, like. I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for the. I'm waiting for them to win in the end. I'm waiting for this to turn out okay. You know, I'm waiting for a cavalry to show up or something. I was waiting for aerial bombardment or for tanks to show up or for Thor to, you know, appear with a tree and a raccoon. Anything, and and none of that happens. They lose. It's over. It's a, it was this was a mistake and lots of people died. And it's like, okay, okay, some dramatic tension here. It didn't all go well for this company. You know, not only did they suffer casualties in every single one of these episodes, but they don't win every engagement. They're not the Avengers. Good. Okay. Are you, oh, I, yeah. I, I'm still hooked here. Oh, this was this was uh, just to give kind of the the Cole's notes version on Market Garden. This was an mm-hmm. idea by by Bernard Montgomery, who was one of the the lead British generals. His whole idea was to find another route into Germany as opposed to directly across the German border. Right. So going to Holland, what they were going to do was basically drop a whole bunch of paratroopers along this road to secure these bridges, and then charge a whole bunch of armor right through those areas to mm-hmm. go catch up reinforce the paratroopers and go across the bridges, be home by Christmas, so on and so forth. No one told the Germans this. <laughs> <laughs> go fig. It is it is one of those things where Clausewitz's old phrase, I love it, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, right. rang so true because yeah. they got completely overextended. The Americans got off easy. They had to retreat. The I think they mentioned in the next episode, British um, uh, paratroop division lost 8,000 guys. Because they got completely cut off. So, I mean, it is... In um, the alternate universe where World War II doesn't happen and baby Hitler, you know, dies in birth, you ever wonder what the world looks like? Don Cheadle strangles him. Right, Don Cheadle strangles him. You ever wonder what the world looks like when we don't lose millions of men over the course of, you know, a 10-year period? I mean, how, how differently the world is after that? I, I enjoy, a, I've never thought of that one. I do enjoy a good counterfactual. I actually do have a couple mm-hmm. of books here called What If. Mm-hmm. Um, no, there's no watcher involved in them, but uh, but that is kind of an interesting one on how that would have turned out. I mean, it just, and I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but like you think about the amount of men 
the amount of men, heads of families, brothers, you know, that died in this war all over the world in every corner of the world. And what would have happened if those men had stayed alive and the, but the world was still evolving at the rate that it was. And, and when I say that, I mean, and slowly, you know, oh, yeah. And you know, that's actually a good point because we're in a lot of cases where we were in 1939 technologically versus where we were in 1940 are, are, or 1945 are completely mm-hmm. different if you do or you don't have the war. Right. Yeah. Ju- yeah. Just the amount of invention that comes out of the, you know, the necessity of war, but I'm not even talking about that. I mean, you think about the amount of people it takes to operate a factory in the early 20th oh, yeah. century and, you know, in the world that we lived in, you didn't have enough people and they were like dying for more people and Bugs Bunny had to go out and sell war bonds so that we could make more bullets. Now imagine there's no war. And and the amount of, what I'm getting at is the amount of large scale depression that would have probably happened. You know, how long the actual depression would have gone on. You can have a very solid argument that this still continued, that the Great Depression still would have continued it mm-hmm. would have lessened and a recovery would have eventually happened at a much slower rate than it actually did during if World War II hadn't happened. Right. That's what I'm getting at. I, there, there is no roaring 50s if, if there's no World War II. Um, what you have is a continuation of, of the 30s. You know, um, you have the crash after the, you have the, you have the crash, the, the um, stock market crash, the Great Depression, and then it just goes. You know, you never have the, you never have that height of success that we were experiencing in the 50s you couldn't possibly have had because you have way too many people on this planet it looks like it looks like 2008 to probably about 2017 yeah yeah i would i would agree with that anyway interesting thought experiment there um all right uh if nothing else about the replacements we'll go on to crossroads here yeah i'm gonna say one thing really 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 quick just generally about the cast um since you brought them up Michael Cudlitz, who played uh, Bull Randleman. Mm-hmm. Um, this show has become a source of my favorite character actors, <laughs> where it's like, there are so many guys who was in this show that if you see them again, it's like, oh, I'll totally watch anything with him in it. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. Like, I, I got to think of the actor, but keep keep going, and I'll, and I'll yeah. see if I can figure this like, out. Michael Cudlitz, uh, John Frank Hughes. Um, uh, I mean, Damian Lewis has gone on to do amazing things since this show. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously way, a lot of you know, Pat's been going on and 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 about Oz. You know who's yep. in this? Kirk Aceveda. Yep. Um, yep. go on. Well, Sorry. I mean, well, what was it on? Well, replacements. James McAvoy was in this, mm-hmm. and then Michael Fassbender's in the background a lot on this one. Uh, I can't remember his name. The actor who played Hall in episode two, of course, played Moriarty for during Sherlock. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there are so many that guys who have either, you know, really reliable that guys or guys who have just gone on to do great things since the show. You know who I loved in this part of like my favorite actor, um, not necessarily my favorite character, but I just love, I love his acting. I love his line delivery. Ron Livingston. Oh, he was great in this. He's so good. Um, if you don't know Ron Livingston and he was in Boardwalk Empire, among other things, um, a lot of television and film credits i mean the guy gets work um he was in the romanoffs which is something i I eventually want to see a million little things louder milk uh some movies that he was in he's actually um he's in the flash that's currently filming um tully lucky 
uh vacation so yeah i mean the guy the guy is just a a reliable hand and a great actor and he's so him and um the guy playing uh um uh, winters have such, yeah uh, such good chemistry together oh yeah you know like you i forgot they were actors at one point and they just seemed like you know friends and you know brothers in arms Oh, for sure. And that's actually one thing to mention. So um, because it's the 20th anniversary of the show, mm -hmm. HBO's actually been doing an official episode by episode kind of rewatch podcast. And they've mm -hmm. had on a lot of the cast. And the thing that they said is that the cast still has reunions. Mm -hmm. They got really, really tight after this. Like there were guys who who all moved into the same apartment building and things like that. So they ended right. up kind of really forging this bond. The other quick funny thing on this is that actually I'm watching one of the special features on the DVD right now is um, they put together a video diary series of the making of, of it. And it was actually hosted by Ron Livingston. Oh, really? Yep. Okay, I have to check that out. Uh, all right. So episode five, as as we were, um, Winters promoted to battalion executive officer writes an after action report on easy company attack during the German counteroffensive of the um, help me. Oh, that's right. I don't have the... I'm betting it's Nijmegen. There we go. Nijmegen uh, salient. He is troubled by the fact that he shot an unarmed teenage German SS soldier during the attack. This flashback recurs in this and later episodes. Easy participants in Operation Pegasus. Uh, Easy Company is sent to Bastogne at the start of the Battle of the Bulge. At the end of the episode, Captain Winters effectively commands the whole battalion. Um, so I don't remember a lot about this episode. What stands out to you? Um, again, I know you and I go on different ones. I think the, the whole engagement and, and how it's all laid out and everything is really mm -hmm. good. One thing they do very well in this series in terms of kind of character and communicating through action and not through by showing and not telling mm -hmm. is it always does a very good job of showing you how on top of things winters was from like a yes. tactical point of view. Super competent that as I started to yeah. read that, I was like, you cannot get away from how the character is portrayed as just the most super competent, assured, very low key uh, executive soldier. Yeah, exactly. And I think one thing they said, um, they were talking about casting on the podcast and um, apparently the other guy who was up for this was, uh, do you remember Ricky Schroeder? The silver spoons actor. I'm not familiar with that show, but a blonde guy. Yeah, the blonde guy. Yeah, yeah. He's actually he he's he's in one of my favorite movies, Pull Hole Junkies. <laughs> he was apparently the other option for Winters, but they okay. said that you couldn't get past that Damian Lewis had kind of that same kind of quiet, confident reserve that yeah. you needed in Winters. And Agreed. just a real a real clarity in terms of being able to say, This is what we're gonna do. I'm gonna do it with you. Here's what we need to do. Here's our plan to fall back. Mm -hmm. Let's execute from there. I was thinking about um, an episode of Star Trek where, you know, they're talking, I've brought this up, but I use this, this story all the time talking about different things, but you know, when Worf is, uh, is transitioning from whatever he is, the Brown shirt to the, yeah. Uh, from to, security to, to command. Yes. Th thank you. So I, my brain isn't working tonight. I'm sorry. Yep. Um, so I, I don't have all the good words tonight. Security to, to uh, leadership command. And he's barking orders at people, and he's being very aggressive. And finally, O'Brien pulls him to the, this is an episode of Deep Space Nine. Yep. Brian O'Brien pulls him to the side. He's like, "Worf, these aren't soldiers. These are engineers. These are mechanics. Like it, they'll they'll do things for you if you just give them the chance. You can't keep yelling at them like this, though." And so he kind of just says, "This is what I would like to see happen. Get me to the end of the road." And yep. they do. 
you know, and he has his whole leadership style changes. And to draw draw the comparison, um, you know, his character is one where he delegates. He's able to hear ideas. You know, this isn't about him and his ego. This is about getting the job done and getting the men from, you know, from from France to Berlin. And like, it's not really interested in his ideas on how to get there so much as he is on what are the good ideas to get there. Yeah, and that exactly. comes out in every episode, and and it's it's truly a, it it's a stroke of brilliance when when you can subjugate your own ego for um because you know that you, you know leadership is about again getting the right people to work for you, not for always you know being in charge and having the best ideas and you know and charging forward, you know if you follow my meaning. Oh, exactly, and I mean. Um, I actually ended up reading uh, shortly after this came out. Uh, Dick Winters actually published an autobiography, which which mm-hmm. I ended up reading. And a lot of what he what his philosophy was was follow me, and mm-hmm. was setting the example to say that we are all going to do this together and things like that. Yeah. And I mean, you can even see it like he's he's relatively social. He knows his men. He's mm-hmm. not too close with them though either, because you've got to have a little bit of that command distance as well. Yes. But um, you know, you can definitely see where he is as a leader you start to see some of his challenges in terms of transitioning away from that direct command role into more of a executive officers, very much a, not an entirely, but largely an administrative role in a lot of ways. It's, right. it's support, it's logistics. It's, it's making sure that right. everything you need to fight the war is there, which it's is incredibly sure important. It's making right? sure the men have, it's making sure the men have socks. Yeah. Which, which by the end of this episode, we will all know is very, very important. I knew it was important from the movies in Vietnam where, you know, what is it in Forrest Gump? Uh, for God's sakes, change your socks before you lose yep. your feet. <laughs> um, let's take a minute to, um, I'll tell you what this, this show is very well written. It doesn't need a service that we are providing um, for free here uh, as a trial, which is Grammarly. <laughs> Strained thing there. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistakes free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, it's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. Alrighty. Episode 6, Bastone. Oh, this is the big one. Easy Company fights in the Battle of the Bulge. I actually read a book on that when I was real young, like like my late teens, early 20s. Um, defending ground near Bastogne while running low on ammunition and other supplies. The episode focuses on medic Eugene Doc Rowe as he helps out his fellow soldiers where he can, while also scrounging for medical supplies where they run dangerously low. He also befriends a Belgian nurse in Bastogne. She is later killed during a German bombing raid. Yeah, this episode is gross. Like, <laughs> I understand we want honest depictions of people, you know, and the effects of war. And and so things blow up. And what kills you not only is the force uh, being pushed out from the explosive, but the shrapnel therein and what it does to people. Just, you know, these are not clean hits. They tear you to pieces. And so there are entire scenes of guys laying on gurneys with their guts literally hanging out, their rib cages broken apart i mean all the credit in the world to the visual effects department the makeup department for creating stuff that rivals anything i've seen in a horror movie for the past 10 years this was accurate 
I appreciated it, but it's gross and disgusting, and I hated it. <laughs> um, also, the futility of being medical personnel when the end of the world is around you. Yeah. You know, try just like trying to I'm like I'm watching the nurses in this episode as they ring out bloody rags and at one point he's like you know he's like I need more you know I need cloth and she, and so she hands him something he's like are these bed sheets they were like that's yeah <laughs> they are bed sheets what do you want from us we're out of everything either that or nothing you know and and again this is the 40s and you know don't have to think about medic um medical as it is now with the technology that we have this is a the 40s b they're out in the bush you know they're they're they are supply lines are are disrupted to say the least oh cut they off they're they surrounded off. yeah and, and so like you just have to make do like i i i see how people react now and you know and when we when we run out of something and have to walk down the hall to go get it and people go woe is me i had to go down to the clinic to get more ativan you know like meanwhile these poor bastards and just the the seeming futility of it all but they push through nonetheless it is a it is a brilliant episode but it is not an easy watch oh no it's not and i mean going again to to talking about experience and stress and things like that that's Mm -hmm. what you see in 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 eugene rowe's face right um you know you you see him kind of go through these ebbs and flows of of going through the day and you just you know you know you're going to hear medic Right. And he's got to take off running again. I uh, I was thinking about a Bill Cosby routine, and he talked about being a medic in the war. And, you know, and it's a funny bit, but now in retrospect and seeing what the medics actually had to do, you know, running, you, th- you know, you talk about you know, firefighters on 9-11 and, you know, what, what are heroes? The people that ran into the fire while everyone was running out or jumping out a window. And, then, you know, and there's Bill Cosby's joke about that is, um, you know, he, <laughs> medic, what do you want? My leg, my leg, take two of these and call me in the morning. You know, or sorry, the line before that, medic, my leg, my leg, I don't make house calls. You know, it's like, uh, but people did. And and that's the point. Oh, for sure. And I've got to, I've got to speak really quick to um, a story I heard through the, through the official podcast. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. I keep on losing him in the, uh, the cast list here, but uh, Shane Taylor, who played uh, Eugene Rowe, mm-hmm. um, point one, British man. So that's mm-hmm. a very good Cajun accent. <laughs> um, uh, but I guess one of the things that they did when they were when they were working on this mm-hmm. was um, during the boot camp, one, everyone was referred to by their character name. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of guys got left, kept their a- accents on whatever it happened to be. And then for him, he basically became the very light, you know, weekend first aider for the entire cast. So if somebody got a blister or they need a bandaid or something, he would go do that and kind of turn it into a little bit of a method thing for him. So really, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I will say, I mean, you know, really good depiction of what was going on during this battle from from Rose's point of view. Um, I don't know if I would if this would have been a I mean, maybe this is one where it kind of fulfills your need to to um you know, break up the way the action is set for a little bit, but I almost would have liked to have understood a little bit more of what was going on with the battle proper itself in a lot of ways. Um, One thing I will say is, is the one kind of dramatic part of this, they do kind of create is the relationship between Roe and the nurse. Yes. So Eugene Roe was definitely there. 
there was also a nurse named Renee who did exactly what was described during that episode, during that battle, mm-hmm. and and died in basically the same way that was described on uh, on uh, I think it was Christmas Eve. But mm-hmm. there's never any account of those two those two meeting. But you know what? To tell both of those stories in a really interesting way, I'm gonna throw my hand and say sure. <laughs> <laughs> but All right. I, it went well. I mean, it definitely, like I said, it goes back to the whole idea of it showed the impact on him of having to do that day in, day out. Yeah. Um, a lot of paramedics um, are traumatized by the experience. You know, you become a professional paramedic. You are first responders. You are seeing people in the throes of psychosis, drug addiction, drug withdrawal, um, dying of drugs, you know, various gross and injuries and whatnot and i have heard many a paramedic say it it, it, became, it becomes all a bit much you feel the need to got to do something else with your life you know running out of the back of an ambulance to pick up a person who's dismembered gets old after a while um is what i've been told so i can only imagine when you're a battlefield medic and you're having to deal with people whose rib cages are blown apart on a regular basis and what that you know what that does to a person I mean, you know, people are going to come out of this with, unfortunately, and I don't mean to laugh because it's sad, um, with really bad drinking problems. And more on that <laughs> with Ron Livingston in just a moment. <laughs> um, but this this is where it stems from. You know, people. You know, it won't be until almost very recent history where we will even acknowledge uh, people poorly coping with the stress of these kinds of events. And treating it appropriately. There were, um, to that note, you know, something that that happened during the course of this mm-hmm. is that even though they had reunions every year, they only talked about what happened amongst themselves. They never mm-hmm. talked about it amongst their family members. And what I, ended up happening is when a lot of the cast members started talking to their counterparts mm-hmm. in the veterans community, the one that was cited to me was was Don Malarkey, who was played by Scott Grimes. Mm-hmm. Don Malarkey never talked to his family about any of this. Right. The only person he didn't start talking to his family until he started talking to to Grimes when he was getting ready for the role. There's a there's a scene in this, and for because we're having a serious elevated discussion, I, I won't do the bit. But there's a um, a character in the last season of The Wire who they uh, they interview. He's a homeless vet, and that's why they're interviewing him. And part of the subplot of that season of The Wire is Scott Templeton is making things up. Um, he's being a bad reporter. And uh, he, he interviews this vet, but then he takes creative license with the vet story. And the vet goes charging into the newspaper to say, I didn't tell him that. I wouldn't have told him that. This isn't something I would have talked about with a reporter. So I don't know why it's in this. First of all, it's wrong. And I don't know. But second of all, I don't even know why it's in this story. Because nobody who's been there, and I think he's like an Afghanistan or, or Iraq war vet at this time, um, would have talked about this. And, you know, to your point, like that's that's sort of a code amongst these. I was like, you know, I won't speak to the relative healthiness of bottling this stuff up inside for as many years as they do. I think that's for a different show. But I will say that they believe, rightly or wrongly, that this is not something you talk about with other people who weren't there. They'll never... They'll never understand is the belief. I think there's also I think there's also an element of not wanting to to burden those people with that either. Mm-hmm. Why sure. why burden this ugliness on on my family? 
Well, you know, the perception is these men raised their bayonets high in the air, yelled charge, and ran from Paris to, to Berlin, you know, <laughs> just, just defeating the Nazis wherever they went. And they were heroes. And it, it, it is, it's nice. That's a nice perception of what happened. But the reality was much more, in, you know, in, inhumane. Yep. You know, it's much more ugly. These people had to do terrible things to, to each other in order to, you know, stop Nazism from prevailing. Yep. You know, and, and so you do it, you, you do the, you do the ugly thing because it's the, it's the right thing to do given all the, um, given all the variables, but it's not, it's the kind of thing that in mixed company, someone might look poorly upon, even oh, though yeah. it was the, it was the desired result. Um, and oh, people for sure. do that now, you know, there are people it's like, I, you know, I was doing my duty. Yeah. But your duty is terrible. And I look down on you because of it is an ongoing debate I see in Twitter. Or there's, or there's kind of morbid fascination in some cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like sure. there's, there's, so how many people did you kill? Right. <laughs> Which I'm like, sure is something that, you know, you want to. Yeah. Must be awesome to skewer an entire army full of Germans on your bayonet. It's like, oh, no. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think even going back to when we were talking to, about um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, there's that great line is from... Is this about uh, the shield? No, we are not having a discussion <laughs> about who owns the fucking shield. <laughs> but there's that there's that comment from... It was John Walker, right? Yeah. About his medals of honor. And he's like... Mm -hmm. Every time I talk about one of these medals of honor, you're talking about one of the worst days of my life. Right. Makes sense. Yep. Uh, episode number seven, The Breaking Point. Easy Company battles near Foy, Belgium, losing numerous men. Winters and the men are worried about the commitment of First Lieutenant Norman Dyke, the company's commander who is frequently absent without explanation. Which, by the way... There's so many people dying in every one of these episodes that I keep thinking we're losing members of the cast. And they appear later on. It was like, I was shot in my ass and now I'm back. You know, <laughs> literally, it's a line in the show. Um, oh, yeah. I can't remember where else I've seen him, but he's this really short Italian looking actor. Oh, James Matteo, yeah. Yeah. And he uh, he disappears for a while and then he reappears. And he's literally like, I was shot in my ass. You know, and, know you and, see him get shot in the ass. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like. I keep thinking all the, you know, like, oh my God, all the people that we started with in episode one are like dead by the time we get to episode seven. And like, no, they're still alive. They were just gone for a while. They were, they were, they, what did they say? They were in medic. Yeah. There were guys who went in and out. There were guys, mm -hmm. like, there are guys who came back with purple hearts out of this show that you right. never see get wounded. Right. Because it was stuff where they got pinged. They went to an aid station, got patched up and, right. and went gentle, back out there again. Gentle chiding about maybe nursing some injuries that, you know, you have, you have some of these guys are just like, well, my leg's hanging off. I'll just tape it up and I'll get right back out there again. And yeah. other guys, you know, I was I was mildly grazed against the thigh and needed six months of rehabilitation. It's like, all right. Um, and I, look, that's not me condemning anyone in the show. That is literally said in the show that, you know, these guys are chiding each other for that sort of thing. Some of them, oh, yeah. some of them, were, some of them were the Black Knight and others, you know, were, uh, you know, my, my liver, my liver, the other side, my liver. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, all right. Anyway, uh, when Dyke screws up while leading the assault on Foy, Winter sends Spears in to relieve him on the spot. Serving as narrator is First Sergeant Carol Lipton, Car Carwood Lipton, rather, who attempts to keep up the morale of the men as they fight in the forest near Foy. After the battle, he receives a field commission as second lieutenant. All right. What do you think of episode seven? Great episode. I think this is probably one of my favorites. Um, just a great story in terms of talking about 
where everybody's at. It's got some of the more, I'm going to say, kind of harrowing sequences in it. Um, I think the big ones are probably those set pieces of them getting shelled. Mm -hmm. Because you kind of, you know, you kind of see it in other movies. And, oh, it's a puff of smoke here and there. Or it's a little, it's a, it's a gas fireball. Mm -hmm. In this case, no, it's not. It's fucking trees exploding. Right. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be glib about that. That's exactly what it is. So, and it's terrifying. People, you know, people think people in war are more often to die by way of machine gun or rifle or whatever. No, by and large, artillery is one of the largest inflictors of, um, of casualties in any given war. That's why it's it, used. It's, oh, exactly. And you don't, you don't see that depicted. You don't see that effect. And, you know, you can see here, this is where the phrase shell shock comes in. Let me ask you and a question. You all, as, a, as a historian, so I was trying to explain to my son how war works. And I said, typically, you try to break the lines, disrupt um disrupt disrupt the lines of resources you know starve the enemy and, you know and drive them into the point of either death or you know or submission and you know you look at movies like braveheart which i know is like centuries before this but like it, they they lined they literally lined up and, and ran at each other you know like the avengers um here you're you're seeing a lot of fighting in trees, you know, guys up a tree and shooting, you know, and people in foxholes. They are not marching in lines. What about did, you know, like even going as far back as a hundred years prior to that, you know, in the um the Civil War, even less, maybe even less, Civil War and uh, the Revolutionary War, they're still marching in lines, and I think that was largely a utility of 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 having muskets as your main weapon. Yep. You know, you had to do it that way. And so I'm just wondering when about did we give up on the marching in lines thing and start going into a more guerrilla style of, you know, foxholes and fighting behind trees and whatnot. Small unit tactics is what is what you're talking about. Yes. And it is it is about not exactly you don't see that transformation overnight, but you start to slowly see that around the um around the Civil War and definitely getting mm -hmm. into the, the Franco-Prussian War that happens like a lot mm -hmm. of that's because you're starting to get away from having to muzzle load your rifles and things like that. So you don't have to be standing up to load and unload your rifle. You can just slap in a, a stripper clip or a magazine and, and continue moving that way. So a lot of the necessity of, of mobility starts to come in. So it's the really invention of the it's the invention of the of the clip rifle. Exactly. The, the called the breech loading rifle. You start to see mm -hmm. more machine guns. And then that eventually um, continues to evolve. A lot of that actually happened during the later stages of, of the First World War. So kind of from 1917 on, you mm -hmm. start to really see what you call your modern small unit tactics. And that okay. goes with both the use of, of the, the breech loading rifle will get smaller, lighter machine guns that now people can carry and can use to suppress fixed uh, fixed rifles. And I mean, you hear the, you hear the term mentioned here quite a bit is fire and maneuver, and that's the way paratroopers fight. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily have a lot of heavy artillery. You've got to put as much fire on the other guy, fix him in place, then move around the other side and shoot him. And okay. that's it's kind of in this period that that you start to see accelerate a lot. Obviously, World War II, once you get into things where, where you know, you have a submachine gun in every, or two in every squad, or you've got, um, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, Sergeant Christensen, um, Michael Fassbender, he's carrying mm -hmm. a light machine gun 
for a lot of this series. And, and those are the sorts of things that allowed people to really start moving towards, you know, we don't have to, we, we can maintain a line, but we're not standing shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. We and that's begin, what I was alluding to. Yeah. We can dig in, we can maneuver, we can, we can use the terrain to our advantage. Uh, anything else about episode seven? Um, I do have to tell a quick story here just from university. This episode actually came up pretty prominently in one of my senior level uh, military history classes. Mm-hmm. Um, as the, the professor was trying to illustrate to people how the students, how things worked. And I had already watched this show like eight times. So this episode inside and out. And one of them was um, definitely showing that, uh, you know, the two artillery sequences um, the other side of this is also um, actually talking about, because he's he'd been trying to identify the, you know, what are the things you look for in a combat leader? Mm-hmm. And then he shows the sequence of spears coming in, pardon me, and kind of taking over command. And you get to see that difference on, on what that manifests itself as and why you'd want to follow in the... Mm-hmm. I will also say one other thing, a remotely personal connection here. Uh, this is written by a, a writer named Graham Yost, who actually grew up, um, and his older brother, uh, a block over, and his older brother actually played hockey with my dad when they were growing up together. Okay. So, That's anyway, a random Canadian connection. Hit that off on your bingo cards, ladies and gentlemen. Fantastic. I'm not playing this the thing. Um, <laughs> all right, The Last Patrol. Um, in Haguenau, uh, Easy Company, Hagenau. Easy Company gives a cold welcome to a new replacement, Second Lieutenant Henry S. Jones, fresh from West Point. Oh, poor, poor Tom Hanks's kid. Oh, Colin? <laughs> that made me giggle. Yeah, <laughs> this poor, this poor guy. Like, like, oh, welcome to the front line, college boy. Like, yes, let's let's condemn the guy with the higher education who volunteered for this shit show. Sure, that's fair. That's that's good. Well, he went to West Point, so we were trained for it. <laughs> yeah, like like right, and then he's just like like oh, welcome aboard, hippie. Like, just give the guy a break, for Christ. Oh, sakes. come on, this had this had one of the best Ron Livingston lines of this entire series. Oh, okay. you graduated June sixth last year. Yes, it was with Eisenhower's son. Oh, that's awesome. Don't get hurt. <laughs> Um, and to David Webster, who narrates the latter, because unlike other members of the company who were wounded, he did not sneak out of the hospital early to rejoin his comrades. Joan and Webster participate in a night raid across the river to get prisoners for interrogation, which gains them some respect. Captain Winters is promoted to major, Lipton's commission becomes official, and Jones is promoted to first lieutenant and transferred to regimental staff. The thing that stuck out to me, other than this is yet another one where it does not go well, I think they are they are ambushed the surprise attack they lose they lose a lot of members um colin hanks is really put to the test in this episode uh but the thing that stood out to me was there's doing your duty and there's being honorable and then there's knowing what has to be done and sometimes those two things don't mesh and what i mean by that is they do not see after the after this fight and how badly it goes they do not see the wisdom of doing it a second time and yet those are their orders and they know no one's going to follow up to see if it was actually done and so to spare the men 
being gunned down again and, you know, and risking even more lives for no real clear purpose. Um, Winters forges a report that is bought, you know, that, that is bought hook, line and sinker. And it, and it gains him even more respect of the men who, you know, people will go ahead and do their duty and they'll march into death for you, but that doesn't always mean it's a great idea. And I think everyone recognizes that, you know, Winters will do, Winters will do the right thing, even if it flies in the face of his own his very own orders. Um, I, I just thought it was a nice moment, a nice human moment about you know how things how things go in a war, and when somebody and you know, and sometimes sometimes you just have to not listen to your orders. You know, well, you have to make you have to make your judgment around orders as well. And I mean. <laughs> Again, this is, I mean, did he violate orders? Yes, he did. Sure. It, this is, this was made in oh, 1955. Oh, he'd been found out. It was, what, it was a treason? He would be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I was going to say, if he gets found out, it's like treason, isn't it? Mm, it's uh, not treason. Specific. It's, it's, but it's conduct it's of a, becoming. There's a couple of yeah. different terms that you can use because sure. of it. He could definitely get himself court-martialed for it. I'll put it to you that way. Yeah. Yeah, treason, but, admittedly, treason, not the right word, but somewhere in that ballpark. Oh, Yeah. But I mean, it's definitely, you know, he made a choice at the time. And, and I mean, even with what happened in during the first raid, what happened was that the guy walked in too soon after throwing a grenade in. Mm-hmm. Because right. grenades all have like a three or five second timer, which you wait to blow up and then you go in the door. And he walked basically into his own grenade. Right. And that's what that's what happened to the one guy. But um, pull pin and throw pin. No, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> nope. No. Let her grenades yep. work? Okay, got it. Somebody else can share a foxhole with you, Mark. I'm sorry, man. I'm, I'm going to be one like 50 yards down the line. <laughs> I uh, Funny you mentioned that. We, we, My friends and I went to go play paintball one day. It was when I was a lot younger. And um, you know, we had a squad stay behind and, and protect the flag. And another squad ran ahead. And I don't know what possessed me to do this, but shortly after they started running ahead, I started shooting because I thought I heard people coming. I don't know why I thought the other army had crossed a 100-yard field in 30 seconds but i thought that and proceeded to fire my my paintball gun in every direction but loose and my and a handful of my friends all walked back covered in paint going what the hell is wrong with you <laughs> and i was like i thought you were the enemy and they were like we had just left <laughs> i uh david swimmer my favorite character in this whole thing though. um so anyway moving on um why we fight as things start to uh, wind down here. Oof, this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I'm just going to go ahead and... Wait and a second, didn't you, didn't you want to cover something about kind of the last couple of lines of episode eight? Uh, refresh my memory. Yeah, all I know is that you sent me the last couple of lines of episode eight with a crying emoji behind it. Oh. Um, it, was the, it was the commentary, what was it? People won't remember what what young men went through in, in Normandy and uh, mm-hmm. Eindhoven and Hagenau. Something like that. Yeah, there, there's a, okay, but there's a line at the end of episode eight that, you know, about people not knowing what the, what they, sac- it was the sacrifice line. As people won't really know what these people sacrificed to, you know, to usher in the second half of the 20th century and, and you know, and the freedoms that we all have. And yeah, it, it broke my heart because it's true. You know, uh, you think about you think about like our kids, you know, who are roughly around the same age and, 
you know, will they know? Will they, will they even be able to tell the next generation, you know, how we got to get how we got to this point? I mean, right now, people debate the merits of the last hundred years and, you know, and, and there are aspersions cast probably unnecessarily. So, yeah, it, 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 it breaks my heart. You know, I used to have a T-shirt and this this was actually a, a Korean War T-shirt, but whether it's Korea, Vietnam, World War Two, it doesn't really matter. It's the sentiment's the same. It says I wasn't there, but I care. And, you know, and then it's there's all kinds of stuff on it. And and that's always how I I felt. You know, I I didn't get a chance to serve uh, due to various medical conditions, but it's something I wanted to do. Um, something I wish I could have done. And I respect the people that have done it. And I feel bad that I feel bad that people have such a black and white view of the military and, and the purpose that it serves that people look at it as sort of a, an evil institution and not, you know, realizing that it is born out of necessity and not appreciating that necessity. It, it bugs me. Oh, definitely. I think, I mean, we, we've kind of had a number of different conversations around this whole thing goes. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, um, one of the uh, better Canadian military historians up here, Tim Cook has written uh uh, recently put, put out a book called the the fight for history talking about the whole conversation around the, the second world war and the fact mm-hmm. that for a long time it wasn't discussed right. in canada it was for for a lot of canada and we've talked about this a little bit um the first world war was very much the prominent war to talk about world war ii was the necessary war right we 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 had to do it because we had to do it. The, the, there was nothing that you could do to do this. And, you know, people are always having this conversation. They're always having this natural reevaluation of history. It's right. something that I, that I very strongly believe in as, as not a historian, but, you know, certainly a, uh, a practitioner of history in some way or another mm-hmm. that you're always, things are, it is very natural for things to always be reexamined, always looked at. And you have to look at it honestly. And you sometimes sure. have to look at it, and in the context of the time and in the context of what those people had for, for information and values and, and things along that line. So um, something that you also have to look at it. I should also say not to get myself in trouble. You do also have to make some judgments about things relative to how we view things now and say, right. this is now wrong. <laughs> oh no, absolutely. Look, in the in the process of, of making somebody into a war machine, and you know you have to dehumanize the enemy. Except that one should then not be surprised when they dehumanize the enemy and treat them as less than humane. Yeah, and it's wrong. It's wrong. No matter you know, it's like how do you, boy that fine line in training it, you know, and, and creating a killing machine and then expecting it to do only what it's told, and oh, yeah. not having it go completely off the rails and do something like you know Abu Ghraib, you know that oh, yeah. whole mess. And, so, and that's something they cover a lot. It'll be interesting whenever we get around to the Pacific because mm-hmm. that is very, they make that of put a point on how different the relationship is between, mm-hmm. say, the American soldiers and the Germans and the American soldiers and the well, Japanese. Sure. Look, other than the term Nazi, what was the difference between the English, the French, the Americans, and the Germans and the Russians? Nothing. We're all white people. <laughs> yeah, and even... Um, it's funny, like they made the comment here, and it's definitely in um, in Ambrose's book mm-hmm. that the places, the two places the Americans kind of got on with the people the best were Holland and Germany. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. The, well, I mean, the early settlements of the American, uh, the American 
colonies. Colonies. Thank you. I got in there eventually. Yep. <laughs> um, the American colonies were Germanic. A lot yep. of, you know, German and English settlers throughout the uh, the thirteen colonies. It's you know us Slavs and Italians and shit didn't come till later. <laughs> so. Um, there's even as Irish out too, so yeah, yes. I, well, the Scots, the Scots a little bit, but the Irish mm-hmm. side of me would not have been let in, right? Um, so speaking of which, and I'll make this very, very brief. This is not going to be one of the famous Rattledge and Broadcasting Network panelist tangents that goes on for an hour, but I am Jewish. Uh, my mother is Jewish, my father is Catholic, he's actually an atheist, but that's a story for a different day. Um, he was born Catholic. And I was not raised with the Jewish tradition. It was sort of um, orbited around my life, but I was, I don't know Hebrew. I wasn't bar mitzvahed. The closest, (laughs) I got, I got, you know, I got my baby surgery out of the way early, but that was a medical necessity and not because, you know, let us have a bris to celebrate the birth of this child. (laughs) Anyway, um, but I, and, and, and look. I, I am very, I, I can make fun of myself, you know, plenty, there's plenty of, you know, things about me that I can, I can have fun with. And I don't mind if people have fun with it too. And there are things that people have fun with me about, and I take it in stride, but I don't love. And one of those things is, is the Jewish tradition. Um, I, I remember just as an aside, the, the day of nine 11, the day of. Okay, I'm working. I've told the story a zillion times. I don't need to go into it again, but I was there. I was working in Brooklyn, uh, not at the World Trade Centers across the river from it. Um, but all of but all of New York was at that point, you know, having struggles uh, because of what happened uh, on 9-11. And, you know, I'm trying to fight my way home and I finally make it home uh, from out of New York. And I'm talking to one of my friends who has his, his sense of humor is exactly like mine. Um, and so we've all we've both said things that were blue and wrong and you know, not, not, not for mixed, not for mixed, uh, mixed audiences. And I'm listening to the news and he doesn't, and he doesn't totally get what's going on. I'm just getting, I'm just parroting what I've, I'm hearing on the radio at this point. I don't really have a good sense of why the Arabs attacked us that day at that point in my life. And I said something about, you know, oh, they're, they're saying it might be because of the Israeli Palestinian thing and something else and an anniversary that was that day. And my friend goes, it's always about the Jews, isn't it? I'm like, come on, man. Like, maybe one day, maybe on the day that we're not being attacked by terrorists, we don't make Jew jokes. And I, and I have heard the, the the Holocaust denial jokes of people that I podcast or used to podcast with. I don't podcast with him anymore. And I've, and I've taken it in stride. You know, I've heard the jokes, what's the difference between a Jew and a pizza? The pizza doesn't scream when you put it in the oven. Oh God! <laughs> have you not heard that? Made one? that joke. Oh my God! That one's like 20, 30 years old. That's, that's how, fucking that's how, awful. That is how I can't believe you never heard that before. Gut wrenching. I'm telling it like oh. off the cuff because it's like a, such a known joke. Oh, really? see, I ended up I ended up reading a couple of of Holocaust accounts when I was in school, and it's okay. like that shit is just stomach churning to me. What I'm and... Getting to the, the the reality of it is, you know. It's, it was a nightmare. The, the, you know, the genocide of the Jews was one of the worst marks in human history. And we probably shouldn't joke about it. I mean, I, I guess if Mel Brooks can, so can we all. But still, like, hey. There's a way of dealing with things. Yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's definitely a coping mechanism. Um, but it, it's something, I think, deep in my heart. And this is something I don't talk about very often because it doesn't come up. But, it, but the whole the Holocaust, the Jewish tradition, the jokes about Jews, the stereotypes and everything. 
it 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 hurts a little. It it bothers me. I wish I wish I, I wish these were things we didn't talk about. I wish we could take it a little bit more seriously. I, I I'm probably one of those people who probably should do a better job of that. All of that to set up this episode is the point. This is where Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks need to show you the gritty truth of what the Holocaust was and what it did to the Jews. And so this is the episode where the Americans go into the uh, one of the concentration camps. Yeah, this was a quick bit of context. The Landsberg mm-hmm. camp, or it went by another name that I can't remember. So this was part of what was called Dachau, which was one mm-hmm. of the, the, it was part of the Dachau complex. So mm-hmm. each one of the major camps had smaller satellite ones as well. And then I think Dachau was one of the, one of the oldest ones. Mm-hmm. Like it was set up well before the war and it was, originally just kind of a, an unwanted person's camp. It wasn't specifically built for, for the purposes of the Holocaust. It was a pr- mm-hmm. political prisoner's camp in a lot of ways okay. at the start. So this was not an easy episode to watch. Um, you know, a lot of what I saw here didn't necessarily, and like it was sad, but I didn't get as empathetic as I can be and as tends to cry during movies and television shows as I get. Not, not a lot of things bothered me up until this point. This one... I said this to Robert when we talked about the father. This was yet another. This was yet another um, uh, situation where I cried so hard watching it, I got a headache and I needed to take a break. Man. It was this was rough to watch. Oh, I I, don't, I can't blame you for that. Not at all. pleasant at all. You know, to see you know the one Jewish fella you know hug and kiss the soldier and not want to let him go. You know, um, I, I Pat Oswald made a joke about. Um, you know, about modern Germans not acknowledging the Holocaust or anything, you know, just sort of like, just like it never happened, not wanting to admit that part of their own horrid history. And he's, and, and, and I always, and I, I mean, as he's doing the impression of the German, um, so, you know, he's talking about like, we did not all jump on a chicken and tear it to pieces because we were starving. And he's making a joke about something, but like those kinds of things happen. And that's why he's saying that, you know, and you get to see a little bit of that here. And like, they, like find these people food and they go back into town and they just rob this baker blind you know they steal his cheese and his bread and you know one of the soldiers puts a gun to him and it was webster yeah you know and uh there's you know the 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 baker's like but but for why and he was like shut up how could you not know you nazi and that's just the thing people didn't know you know they may have seen people being taken away but they did not 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 everyone knew what was happening the the length and breadth and the, the inhumanity that was happening specifically in those camps yeah and i mean that's always that's always been a big debate on who knew how much right and i mean even going back to i mentioned docow and i remember uh, and I even if a, they did know the the ability of cog- you know cognitive dissonance is real also oh, yeah, willful, sure. willful ignorance yeah like, i mean there's even there's even questions of how much the allies knew and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There have been debates about should the allies have done more to try and, you know, should they have bombed the camps in some mm-hmm. capacity or something? Have you ever like read uh, IBM and the Holocaust? No, I haven't. So the whole thing is, is, is basically about how we, how the Americans, while we were neutral in the first part of the war, were selling things to both the Germans and uh, the English. And one of those companies was IBM. IBM was absolutely aiding the Germans at the start of the war. Um, that's what that's part. It, that's in part what IBM and the Holocaust is about. Okay. Um, I don't. I, I. It's been a while since I've, I've read it, so I don't remember all the details. Okay, I have to go but, look that one up. So yeah, it's by, it's by the same guy that wrote, wrote War Against the Week. Uh, Edwin Black, I believe, is his name. I'll look it up in a second. In any case, to your point, 
we were not angels. You know? Oh yeah. You look at, um, there was a, they called the, I can't remember who phrased it. I think a Canadian might have, but, um, they referred to the 1930s as the low dishonest decade. And it was kind of the the nature of accommodating a lot of the fascists as much as they can. I can't remember the name of it now, but there was a ship that had gone from England to Canada to the United States that was full of Jews trying to escape Europe, and they were turned away at at every uh, every. Yeah, oh, there we go. Yeah, okay, I, I don't have to look that one up. Yeah. Um, and they were turned away at every port, and they eventually ended up back on. Um, back in continental Europe and a lot of them ended up not surviving the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was um, I know they've, a lot of survivors have actually been compensated since then because of the behavior of the governments in question. All right. I mean, look, and, and this is why some of this stuff bugs me, you know, there's, there's a great, there was a great old rap song from my, from the early nineties. It was, a, it was a sent out as a single. I'm like every record company, every record store had this. It was a A to the D and it was uh, called the Renegade Jew, and there's a line about it. Uh, you know, blacks and Jews to yeah, t- blacks and Jews together belong. And you know, basically alluding to the fact that while you know, while the blacks have the um, the, the legacy of slavery, the Jew, you know, the Jews have not ha- had not had it easy either. Just centuries upon centuries of being outcasts in any community since since the death of Christ. So you know, and and before that. So, you know, I, 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 I'm bringing that up only because it's entirely believable and it actually did happen that, I'm, you know, the stories about America knew just to one degree or another what was happening to the Jews in Europe, but it was just the Jews, so nobody cared. You know, it's, it's the, it was the Jews in Europe and it was like, eh, you know, it isn't, it isn't until we're in the war and you see... And you, and you see it with your own eyes and you realize eh, we probably should have cared a lot sooner than we did. I don't know if it was a matter of, of, of that level of denialism. I think there mm-hmm. was definitely, I think there's almost a level of, it can't be that bad. Like they're probably being I, worked. They're probably doing stuff like that. I don't no, think no, they had I, any. And I agree with that. I'm saying yeah. just the, if it's happening to the Jews, well, we don't like the Jews as such anyway. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, and one thing I'll say about the this episode is that um, during the making of it, um, apparently one of the problems they ran into in a lot of cases was that they were having a lot of a, a very hard time getting any of the veterans to talk about this. Sure, uh, for obvious reasons. The one exception to this was Dick Winters, mm-hmm. and Winters made a point of saying um, this was when you were starting to see a lot of Holocaust denialism come up. There was some douchebag up here that eventually I think ended up going to jail or being deported of Ernst Zundel or some shit like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, Dick Winter said, I was there. I saw this and we need to tell this story because this happened and we can never let it happen again. Yeah. And I'm going to take a quick moment here. Someone's going to hate me for it. I don't care. <laughs> I have seen in the last couple of months, there have been certain comparisons between current public health measures and what happened during the Nazi reign, up to and including the comparison. What are you talking about? Of things, of modern medical facilities to gas chambers. Do me a favor. Pull your head out of your ass. Because there is... 
it offends me as a historian. It offends me as a human being that you don't understand the comparison of those two things. It just, it enrages me to the point I've bit my tongue, but I'm having the opportunity to get my 30 seconds on the soapbox. I am now stepping down and friendly Andrew is coming back. Thanks captain Canada. Um, (laughs) So just, I I don't want to spend too much longer on this. Um, I just kind of re- finish reading the uh, the plot synopsis. Some of the men on patrol stumble across a concentration camp near Landsberg and the free and free the surviving prisoners after realizing the guards had abandoned their post. The sight of the victims leaves the soldiers horrified and disgusted. The German locals deny knowing anything about the camp. General Taylor imposes martial law in order to camp they clean up the camp, including removing the bodies. The episode closes with Nixon announcing that Hitler has committed suicide. The other thing I want to talk about this, um, and and I think this is where I. I I've seen, I've been to the Holocaust Museum. I've seen the pictures. So what they show in the episode is grotesque and horrifying. It makes me really sad. But I don't think I really lost it to the point where I, like I said, I was trying so hard I got a headache. Until, you know, when they, you have the medical provider say, you, you can't just throw food at them. They're going to get sick. We have to, we have to do this in a very structured, regimented way. Because that's what the, that's what caring for these people means. But it also means doing something that on its face seems almost evil. And that is they have to lock them back up in the camp again. Look, you can explain to somebody, and I go through this in my job almost every day, or I watch people do it every day, the good of of what's being done to you and the value of it and how it's supposed to save your life and watch those people deny it, refuse it, just have no, want nothing to do with it. And just... So, like, we deal with people who go through withdrawals, and we're like, well, we want to give you medicine so that you don't die from withdrawals of benzos and alcohol and or. And they're like, no, I don't want it. But you'll die, (laughs) is the point. (laughs) And they're like, "Eh, I'd rather die. I don't want your medicine. I refuse. And it's like, you just can't get through to them. And and, and that's just dopes, you know, dealing with, you know, substance abuse problems. You can imagine these people who have been, you know, kidnapped and 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 nearly murdered the ones that are still alive in this concentration camp rescued by the americans and five minutes later going we know we're rescuing you and please trust us but get back in your cages just just be it's for your own good and how horrifying that must be for those people you know how how just absolutely like fear inducing and 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 nice suicidal it must make somebody to hear you know to say we know we just rescued you, but hang on. We might have gone a little too far here. Get back in the cage. And you could see the look on the soldier's face. He has to translate that and how, and how crestfallen he is. And just, you could, you know, it's like the episode of the Simpsons. You could kind of just see his heartbreaking. You know, oh, it's, it was, it was rough. That's, that's, that's when I lost it. Oh, Ross McCall was so good in this episode. Like he, yeah. his, his underlying, um, delivery and his pathos when he was doing all of those lines was mm-hmm. was just incredible and um one one thing that's apparently come up since then is that they they kind of identified his um his character joseph Weebgott as being jewish mm-hmm. he might not actually have been jewish or not i think um we've got died before the series had started i think he died in the the 80s or, or early 90s or something like that mm-hmm. and i think a lot of the other people they talked to about him kind of said yeah he's got kind of they thought he had a jewish sounding name and he really hated the germans so they put two and two together. with leave i don't blame them 
but anyway, he may, it may or may not. So there may have been a mm -hmm. little bit of creativity around the character, Sorry. but I think in terms of, in terms of the pathos of that character and the way and the weight of him having those conversations, like the, mm -hmm. the interaction with the first survivor, when they're asking, you know, what kind of camp is this? Mm-hmm. And then, um, is it are criminals? It's like, no, it's not criminals. It's, it's artists and painters and everything like that. Right. And, and, you Jews, know, when he says Jews, Oh, exactly. And when he says Jews and right. he, he just, the weight of that line delivery just hits you like a brick. Yeah. Um, I feel like the episode, I feel like the series could have ended here, but we have one more story to tell and that's why it ends where it does. Yep. But had this been the last episode, it probably would have ended on its strongest episode. I think. It, why we fight is definitely one of the one of the strongest ones. Yeah. Um, one other quick anecdote on this one, and again, this comes from the the official HBO mm -hmm. uh, podcast that they have going on right now. So they spoke to the writer of this episode, and um, he made the joke of saying that he was this was one of his two of his first writing gigs. So he wrote both Day of Days and he wrote this. Mm -hmm. And his joke was that, wait a second, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks just asked, asked me to write uh, Saving Private Ryan again. And now they're asking me to rewrite Schindler, Schindler's List. <laughs> and he, he, he did well, but mm -hmm. one of the things that he's done in the meantime was he's also been to the National Holocaust Museum and he had a chance to speak with some of the interpreters there. Mm-hmm. And I guess the interpreters just in kind of casual conversation with, with people who visit are, are like, well, you know, how do you, how did you understand, where did you come to learn about the Holocaust and things like that? And apparently this episode is becoming one of their first answers. Okay. Uh, episode 10 points. The company captures the Eagle's nest in Burtis Garden, finding a vast collection of liquor in her, in Herman Goring's house. Winters gives Nixon first choice and then allows the rest of the men to take what they want. Yeah, I need to address this. Um, watching Nixon sort of descend into alcoholism was really sad. Like, you get his frustration. This is something, and, and Nixon sort of embodies what's going on with the whole company, and, and it goes to what happens next, or nearly happens next. How beat up over this two-year span, you know, like I said, first in and first in in almost every encounter, you know, we, we didn't talk about it for very long because it, it slipped my mind. But that tire, that entire section in the middle part of the show of them, you know, out in in the wilderness with no supplies, just braving the winter with hardly enough winter clothing to get them through. People having to, you know, not if battling Germans to the left of me, frostbite to the right. I mean, it, it is ridiculous what this group of people went through over a two year span to liberate Europe from the Nazis. And um, and and Nixon is wearing it all over his shoulders and his face, and this kind of seeing the perceived futility of it all, and having no other way to cope than to drink, drink himself into demotion, drink himself into despair, and then be told, "Oh, and by the way, now you have to go to Japan." Like eek. Um. So so it's like I know like what the scene is not supposed to. The scene is not supposed to necessarily invoke like sadness in the audience. It's kind of a tee-hee moment. Like, oh, look, the spoils of war, this vast liquor cabinet. But it's like, this guy is about to drown his fucking liver in, in alcohol. Maybe this isn't something we should be celebrating. 
Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, even when we talk about the whole conversation around trauma and battle experiences mm-hmm. and battle stress and things like that, they make a point of saying Lewis Nixon never fired his weapon. Right. <laughs> he never, he, he had, what was it? They had, he ended up doing another jump with the 17th airborne and, um, he made it out of the plane before it mm-hmm. blew up and they come back and say, you're one of the th- few guys who probably has three combat stars over his jump wings. And he says, yeah, not bad for a guy who's never fired his weapon in combat. And they don't do this anymore. Do they? I think even at the height of the Iraq war, you still could only go for like six months and then you had to, they had to give you a break. From, if I remember yeah. correctly. And that was something kind of unique around easy company. So easy company in a lot of cases, because it was a parachute regiment actually mm-hmm. probably saw less time on the continent and less continuous combat than a lot of other units. Mm-hmm. But they tended because they were elite because they were paratroopers. They were always on, on the, on the edge of the spear. Mm-hmm. I just, the amount of time in extended combat is what I mean. Like, I think, I think now in modern combat situations, like in Iraq and Afghanistan, you're only allowed to be in the theater for X amount of months. And then they have to send you somewhere else. Well, weren't you guys, I mean, at one point the American army was doing like 15 month deployments something like that yeah like that's that's wild i mean i think when the canadian army was going in and out of afghanistan there were six month tours right and, and again i might, might be off on something i wish you know if somebody if somebody hears this and wants to get back to us that's fine about what the specificity of the tours were i know in some cases people were on because of necessity for whatever the reasons were some tours were extended past the point of what they were supposed to be which i remember um this had to have been in, I don't know, 2008 or 2009, somewhere in there. Yeah. My, it was before I met, met my wife. So 2000, so actually more 2007, 2008. Um, I remember somebody, I was at lunch with a, with a bunch of friends and one of them was like, I'm really afraid we're going to be drafted. And this is shortly after Rumsfeld specifically said, we're not doing a draft army. <laughs> <You know? laughs> For Christ's sakes, calm down. Um, in any case, it's just, I, I thought about that because like, one of the, the acknowledge one of the things that was acknowledged and I, and I thought about this as I was watching the show is the usefulness of your army once you've run them ragged with no breaks and and, and, oh, yeah. and really how useful is that um you know you might be spending a lot of time and, and resources and treasure on continuously training people to replace those in the field but you know on the the other hand you're you're not completely breaking the mentality of those people by leaving them in the theater for years and years at a time yeah and i mean this is definitely a challenge like i remember this was this was a big conversation in canada at the time mm-hmm. during the later stages of, of world war ii was trying to figure out what you're going to do about ground troops right because you know world war ii wasn't the kind of or it's not perceived as in some ways is the kind of meat grinder that world war one was on the western front right yet 11 months the 11 months in northwestern europe you were having similar casualty rates mm-hmm. and the thing was is that you didn't have this massive army anymore you still had big armies but you also had a much more diverse military because you had larger navies you had an entire air force that didn't exist before right where you were throwing tons of young men into um you had three theaters that were going on so for a lot of the armies they were having serious conversations about how do we keep our front line you know ground forces our infantry our armor stuff like that supplied with men to be able to fight right um all right so finishing this up um the battalion heads to austria where the end of the war in europe is announced 
Those with high points go home, believing that his men no longer need him. Winters applies for a transfer to the Pacific Theater, but the officer in charge tells him his men have earned the right to keep him around. And the, if the 101st is transferred to the Pacific, he'll be put in command of the battalion. Despite the peace and the relative ease of Salzburg, men continue to be injured and die over a company baseball game. Winters tells in voice over the fates of some of the men playing in it. He interrupts the game to announce the surrender of Japan, which ends the war in Asia. The survivors offer some final comments and their names are displayed. I was really surprised at the amount of guys they were talking about in this, you know, that went home to not, and I don't, I don't want to just be disparaging when I say this. So um, a lot of uh, uh, hands-on jobs. Like one guy goes, one guy's like, I, he's like, oh, he went home to drive a cab. Another guy becomes a handyman, which granted in the 50s, a handyman is a hell of a job. But, um, you know, like the army creates engineers, people with real skill, people that go on. Like in my lifetime, I have seen people enter the military, leave the military and go and, and, and get six figure jobs, you know. And so it was an interesting thing, even, at, you know, in the, in the mid to late 40s, early 50s, to hear that some of these guys came home from the war and just went back to the jobs they might have had had there been no war. And I was really surprised by that. You know, the skill level that you have to pick up um, while in theater and it not being applicable to a to a good job at home. Yeah, and that... That one's kind of interesting because I remember I'd watched the series a number of times. I definitely remember that episode mm -hmm. um, before I'd actually read the book. And the book has a much wider um, kind of afterward section talking about a lot more of the soldiers. Mm -hmm. And a significant number of these guys did very, very well for themselves in, in their post-war life. I'm sure they did, which means it was, it was a dramatic narrative choice to do it that way. Yeah. Like, so, you know, these heroes, these, you know, these gods among men who charged across Europe and defeated the Germans single handedly, you know, went back to driving cabs as if like, you know, like, hey, these were real people. You know, these were these were uh, salt of the earth cut from the same cloth as you. And it's like, OK, I would have rather you just been truthful you know, and, and yeah. not, not try to paint to paint me a picture like just say. And many of them went on to run IBM. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like like uh, Don Martin, one of the sergeants, did mm -hmm. very well for himself. Carwood Lipton did extremely well for himself. Right. Um, one of the one of the funnier stories actually was um, Buck Compton, the guy uh, played by Neil McDonough, mm -hmm. who I'm very happy. I'm I'm currently rewatching Yellowstone right now, and he's in season two. He just showed up, and it's like great. <laughs> Neil McDonough's here. <laughs> I can't. I, I every time I look at him, I just see um, uh, Damian Dark from Arrow. I have not watched Zero, so I don't have that association. Oh, okay. He's, he's <laughs> as long as you're not associating show. him with M. Bison from that stupid Chun-Li movie, then we're probably okay. Um, but anyway, what ended up happening was, uh, and this is a story from Tom Hanks on the on the mm -hmm. podcast, was one thing he, he noted about this series and why it was so important is that it started conversations about the war, Second World War again. And he actually had one of his neighbors come up to him and say, you know what? I I worked in I was a lawyer. I worked in the prosecutor's office for a long while, and there was always one of these guys, one of the older guys, who had all this World War II stuff in his office. Mm -hmm. I never realized it was Buck Compton. <laughs> so there were people who literally didn't didn't realize this thing. And I mean, that ending bit also. They don't necessarily talk about everybody. Like they don't talk right. about what happened to to um, Bill Garnier, for example, who. Mm -hmm who did that they don't talk about 
you know, they don't talk about Malarkey who was at the baseball game, but Scott Grimes couldn't make the, couldn't make the, uh, the, um, the shoot for something like that. So mm-hmm. that it's a nice sentiment. I don't know if the execution is quite there. Yeah. I, I would say this is a great show and I'll make, I'll give my final thoughts now. This is an absolutely wonderful show. Um, I'm, this was a, a great watch. I think it was a nice choice for our veterans day show. Um, it was not always easy to watch, but it does kind of, it doesn't fall flat, but it does definitely stumble at the end, at, you know, across the finish line. I don't know if it quite stumbles or not. It definitely, it definitely goes out on a lower key. Um, that's what I mean. Like, I feel like it should yeah. have ended on why we fight. No, that's fair. Or at least maybe extended that out and, and done a little bit of what we saw mm-hmm. in there as well. But I, I do also like the fact that they include this part about talking about, mm-hmm. you know, oh shit, we might have actually have to go fight in Japan. Well, that and- crushed me. Like, like, how could you do that to these men? Like they did it, you know, the, the mission objective was storm the, you know, storm the heavily fortified beaches of Normandy, parachute into death and storm across, storm across Europe into Berlin. Mission accomplished. Let these men go home. But, you know, the necessity of war and what, you know, the meat grinder that was the Pacific theater, I guess, you know, the decision was they couldn't until the Japanese surrendered. Which, by the way, as inhumane as the atomic bomb was, can you imagine the alternate universe where we don't drop the atomic bomb? I have had that thought on a number of cases, and we can have that conversation even when we get to the <laughs> Pacific, because I think on on some level that show makes a really good case for for not having that reality come to pass. Yeah, no, it would have been ugly. The um the impression I've got from anyone cruel. with any authority over over the um whether or not we should have dropped the bomb the way that we did was look but drop the bomb don't drop the bomb the uh, the objective was to convince the japanese that if this doesn't end soon there will be no more japanese people on earth and i guess there was other ways that could have done it the, the dropping two atomic bombs on civilian cities was the way that they went yeah, and, and there's been some debate about. I was actually just listening to a, a podcast off of uh, Hardcore History this month. They they just finished a like a six part, twenty four hour long series called Supernova in the East that basically covers the entire Pacific War. Mm-hmm. And um, they were talking with a historian at the end who I guess has done like a six hundred page, three volume history of it. And they do have that conversation of would should they have dropped it on two cities or should they have dropped it on say a military base said you've got three days giving them the chance to surrender and then if not then drop it on a city but they didn't surrender between the sixth and the ninth so i don't know it's i think that that is really one of those those heavy what-ifs of history sure your final thoughts on band of brothers sir after you've now watched it a millionth time (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, still really holds up. It's It's been probably a few years since I've watched the series end to end, and it, mm-hmm. it really does hang in there in terms of performances, in terms of, in terms of action, in terms of drama. Um, I actually do get quite a few laughs out of this series. I think there's some great lines kind of among some of the, the true characters in here. Um, if you do get a chance, please do watch this. I think it, I think it's a pretty wonderful tribute to, uh, to what is at this point a lost generation, like yep, um, there are there are, as far as I know there are very few, if any, 
Easy Company veterans laughed. And that's becoming increasingly true of all World War II veterans. Um, I think Don Malarkey was one of the last guys to die. He died in 2017. He was 96 years old. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, I certainly do encourage everybody just kind of on a closing note that, you know, to take some time tomorrow, reflect on, on all of our veterans past and present on what they've done, what they've gone through and what they've sacrificed for us to have the, uh, the quality of life and the, the, the freedoms that we have today. Very well said. So we've already got our next year's show planned because boy, are we planners on the Rattle Legend Broadcasting Network. Uh, next year, we'll be doing a triple feature. Uh, we collaborated on picking the titles for this. We're going to do Full Metal Jackets, speaking speaking of drill sergeants, uh, <laughs> The Outpost, which was um, Andrew's choice, and Hamburger Hell, which it's one of those where like I've seen Full Metal Jacket, I've seen Platoon, I've seen all these war movies from like the 80s and 90s, and I've never seen Hamburger Hell. It was one of those where I always saw it on the video shelf but I never watched it. So I was like, I, I have to find a reason to watch this movie. So that's what we'll do next year. But it, seem, it seems like getting you to do the odd occasional historical drama show is kind of our shtick. And we should probably pepper, you know, we, I don't think we have to wait till veteran. We'll be doing this for Veterans Day for the next hundred years if we uh, yep. continue to wait that long. So I think, um, I know that you are busy with family and that's all I'll oh, say yeah. about that. <laughs> um, so getting you to do this was kind of a, a special occasion. Um, but when you are readily available and the bug bites you again to do more podcasting, we will start peppering a little bit more of these in. I've really enjoyed this conversation. You, me, and David talking the right stuff uh, back in August was a lot of fun. And I just think we need to do more of these. Oh, definitely. And I think once we, uh, I think you, me, and Dave doing the 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 Masters of the Air whenever that comes out, which will be going, mm -hmm. coming out actually on uh, Apple TV Plus mm -hmm. whenever that drops is, I think will be uh, something I'm looking forward to. Okay, I'll make sure uh, I, I pay attention to when that is coming, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah, between now and next Veterans Day, we will talk the Pacific. We'll just do it whenever. Um, okay, sounds good. Maybe, yeah, maybe let's talk offline about that one after mm -hmm. a couple of the things you've talked about here. Sure. We might need to ease in the Pacific. Maybe we do Generation Kill in the meantime. <laughs> yes, that's the other one. Um, I don't want to wait until another Veterans Day, because I, uh, I don't know if people know this about me or not, but I'm really a big fan of The Wire. And, um, you know, I you like to drop the, you can hit the drop now. I think we're past the heavy stuff. Okay. Okay. So, so cue me up again. You know, um, what, what's the one that I said that I wanted to do? Is it possibly the wire? <laughs> no, no. Oh, Generation Kill? Yeah. But my good friend, uh, David Simon, who created the wire. Jesus, what the fuck did I do? Be happy now, bitch. <laughs> so yeah we gotta we gotta get generation kill done and then the deuce no just kidding um i wouldn't make you watch the deuce that's that, that's more of a me and pat's thing anyway um all right so just like comment and subscribe wherever you if you discovered this while you know streaming while it was streaming tonight or if you happen to catch it after the fact when it's posted um either on the w2mnet.com or uh facebook or twitter wherever you happen to see it uh if, you, if you've enjoyed our conversation, if you want to see more of this sort of thing, again, like, comment, and subscribe on um, uh, any podcatcher that uh, we're on all of them, or on Apple Music, Spotify, or uh, you can check us out on YouTube where this video will be posted. That's really it. Um, a couple of things. We re finally reviewed Eternals. I never have to talk about that movie again. Thank God. Um, <laughs> I have the, not uh, seen it yet. <laughs> it's fine. Wait, wait, wait a month. It'll be on Disney+. Plus. Um, 
That's been my we, strategy on Shang-Chi, and I'm going to watch it over the weekend. <laughs> we uh not nearly as serious as all this. We also reviewed Titans this week. Tomorrow, uh, we've got more TV shows because, you know, I've got nothing better to do but watch TV as the story goes. Uh, myself and Alexis Hanna will review Chip and Dale Park Life. Chip and Dale Park Life. And then in the evening, after I come back from seeing Rocky IV, the director's cut, uh, myself and Ronnie Adams will be reviewing Heels. I'm taking Friday off, goddammit. And instead, uh, Jesse, Robert, and Alexis will be reviewing What If. Um, David, me, and Andrew all dropped out of that one. And speaking of David, we'll be re-airing his Star Trek. He'll be re-airing for the first time, rather, his uh, Star Trek Kelvin retrospective, where Robert and I got into a sissy slap fight over the uh, the Beastie Boys, which was fun. So uh, check out all of those things, and I'll let you uh, go ahead and plug the dojo that you're currently rolling in, or anything else you want to talk about. Uh, sure thing. So I do train here in Calgary at uh, Esteem Martial Arts and, and Havoc uh, JKD, uh, available on uh, on all of your major social media platforms. Uh, for those of you looking to kick it old school, on the 19th, they will be holding uh, a bare-knuckle boxing seminar. <laughs> Woohoo! So, uh, and it, I'm not meaning the promotion where people who just don't want to wrestle in the UFC go and fight them, but actually talking about some of the, the core historical art of bare-knuckle boxing that was done in the 19th century. So, something a little bit unique there for you. Exactly. Assume the proper attitude, Mark. <laughs> And All as right. my instructor says, put on your fighting trousers. But anyway, please do check that out on on uh, social media. And uh, otherwise, I you want think... To do your, uh, your sensei's uh, podcast real quick? Uh, yes. Uh, my instructor, Jay Cooper, does also maintain a podcast called The Bang of the Hound. I'm really... Uh, there. I think he's probably working on some new episodes soon. I know also one of my other instructors, uh, Harinder Singh Sabarwal, is going to be uh, starting up the Black Belt Magazine podcast as well soon. So definitely oh, go check cool. him out. I remember as a kid reading Black Belt magazine. It's still going. Are you shitting me? Really? Wow. I have a subscription. <laughs> Hot dog. They had, right. they had the Cobra Kai cast on it a couple of months ago. That's amazing. All right, folks. Happy Veterans Day from... Uh, oh, be before we go, Andrew, you were out in the woods, right? You were out there hunting all manner of beast. What kind of music were you listening to to pass the time? What was I listening to to pass the time? Knowing me, I think I was listening to a lot of Foo Fighters and a lot of Tragically Hip. Well, you know where you can find Foo Fighters in the Tragically Hip? Would it be Amazon Music? It would be. <laughs> we are happen to be giving away a free 30-day trial of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. Click the link in the description of this podcast at getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. Again, it's getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network to uh, stream all the music you like. It doesn't have to be the Foo Fighters, but it could, could be. They're a perfectly lovely band. My brother-in-law has been talking about Dave Grohl's book nonstop lately. So That's on my Christmas list. Is it really? Yes, um, it is. Elvira's on mine. <laughs> um, but we all have our priorities. In any case, uh, if, you're, if you like free music and who doesn't, Click the link, get a free 30-day trial of Amazon Music Unlimited on us at getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. All right. Finally, for Andrew Graham, I'm Mark Radlett. Happy Veterans Day. Be well, be safe, and behave.